2: Good morning and a welcome to Our Wild World. We've been talking a lot lately about the differences and conflicts between the human needs and the needs of our wildlife in various continents and countries around the world. From the U.S. and the wildlife conflicts we have here with our carnivores and wild neighbors to the conflicts and human needs in Africa. So today, I'd like to bring on a very special guest. His name is Tobias Nyumba. I've known Tobias for about five years. I met him first at Space for Giants, a the Space for Giants Trust in Kenya up in the Laikipia area working with Max Graham who has been on our program before so be sure to tune in to that previous program but today we have Tobias himself and he's been working when he worked with Space for Giants he's also worked with African Wildlife uh, Foundation and he's Kenyan from Kenya uh, highly educated, and he's currently under Wild Eye's sponsorship and many other people sponsoring, uh, pursuing his PhD at Cambridge University in the UK. So at this time, I'd like to welcome Tobias, and he's going to tell us a little more about himself and what he's doing. And the topic today is human elephant wildlife conflict and what we can do about it and what we're doing in terms of today to reassess what didn't work in the past and find ways to make it work in the future. So, good morning, or actually good evening, Tobias, and welcome to Our Wild World.
3: Hello, Ellie. It's actually good evening here in Kenya, very warm. Uh, As you mentioned, my name is Tobias Nyumba. Uh, I work in conservation with particular focus on the African elephants. Uh, my interest in working with elephants actually dates back to my days in the university, at Egypt University in Kenya, where I was a conservation student. And uh, essentially during our third year of study, we visited the world famous Maasai Mara National Reserve, where I came face to face with the African elephant, and indeed I was really mesmerized, because this animal was so huge, it was exactly, to me at that time, the size of our school bus, which was very strange because I had never seen an animal that large. Uh, as a growing young man, we had folk tales where we were told stories about clumsy elephants that couldn't outcompete a hare. But now when I saw this animal, I, I, the reality dawned on me. And from then, I got interested in getting to know much more about the elephant and especially Uh, its conservation and management concerns in the African context. And so in the final year of my study, I joined Dr. Max Graham. By then, he was a PhD student from the University of Cambridge. And he was studying the interaction between humans and elephants and how they utilize resources and space in the Laikipia Plateau in northern Kenya.
2: So what you probably... My
3: responsibility then as a researcher...
2: I'm sorry, sorry. go ahead. I interrupted. Go ahead.
3: Thank you. So, my responsibility then was to try and get as much information about human and elephant interactions in Lycopia as possible. And one key thing that stood out was the nature of the interaction that was very negative, so that many people appeared to hate the elephants in Lycopia landscape. And this included massive crop raids and also injuries and deaths to human beings as a result of their uh, encounter with elephants. But on the other side, I also found people who are killing elephants in retaliation. They felt bereaved because the government wasn't doing much, and so they took matters into their hands and, and killed elephants in response to the destruction. Uh, but on the other hand, again, I visited a number of conservancies, including Olpegeta Conservancy and Solio, uh, Solio Ranch, where I saw loss of tourism revenues coming in as a result of photographic uh, tourism based on elephants' existence. And so this got me thinking, why would people hate elephants so much but on the other side, they love the same animal so much? And this, I realized, needed more thinking and more uh, you know, studies to try and come up with sustainable ways to address such kind of uh, negative and positive interactions to bridge the gap. And so I found myself Working into this area of elephant management and especially the mitigation of human elephant conflicts. Well,
2: this is this is fascinating. So you mention a love hate relationship between people and elephants, and what I really liked about what you said was human elephant interaction, as opposed to the continuously and consistently used term human elephant conflict. When we use the word conflict, it immediately implies a negative response, where interaction implies there is a way to work something out For both to address both positive and negative. So what I didn't quite understand was you said the tourists love elephants. Of course, Western tourists come in to see Africa's amazing and unique wildlife. We need to understand that elephants only... Uh, persist and survive in the wild in Africa. It's the only place they are uh, today, and there are some in Asia, uh, a different species, and there are some in China, which is a whole another matter. Once again, an Asian elephant. But then you mentioned uh, the local people, Africans, who interact on a daily basis with elephants both negatively and positively. So what is the positive interaction of local Kenyas in the areas that you worked?
3: Thank you, Ellie. Uh, the positive interactions are actually quite obscured. And you talk to many farmers, many local residents, and they will never be able to articulate this until we are able to help them identify them. And one such positive interaction is especially among the pastoralist communities, is the way elephants open up grazing areas for their livestock. And many of them have not really identified this as a positive way and a, a means by which elephants assist them to uh, sustain their livelihoods. At the same time, during drought, when elephants walk the, the, uh, on riverbeds, especially in areas like Samburu, they dig water from the sandbeds and drink out of that. And when they leave, the pastoralists take their livestock to the same, same spots and are able to water their livestock. Now, that's a very positive uh, way they interact. But on the other side, uh, farmers generally tend not to get to see any benefit from wildlife, except where they are members or participants in community conservancies or community ecotourism ventures. Now, these actually come through revenues that accrue, that they are able to uh, invest either in building schools or hospitals, or sponsorships or scholarships to their children who perform well, and they live in areas where elephants coexist with them. On the other hand also, uh, some of the people who tend to benefit from the existence of elephants in their areas are those who have also embarrassed uh, conservation activities on their private property. And so a number of uh, wealthy locals who are able to own large pieces of land have been able to leave them open for wildlife to roam, and elephants have been able to occupy such spaces. And so when tourists come and take, uh, or rather engage in uh, tourism activities there, they are able to engage directly with the owners of this property without having government to come in and delay the revenue that gets to them. Kelly.
2: So we're talking about low impact interaction and high impact interaction and it sounds like the high impact interaction where elephants wreak damage, destroy co- crops and kill people is is a negative benefit of having elephants there and a negative impact but um it, what from what i understand in what you're trying to do in creating this conservation network and working with local communities to assess their needs, which is what has to happen in conservation. We can't just go in and say, this is what you need to do without taking into consideration the needs of the people who are actually living side by side with uh, wildlife that can cause damage or death or um, interrupt livelihoods and economics. So you just stated that there is a huge economic benefit to having live elephants living with these communities, but that they didn't necessarily make that connection, that the elephants opened up a landscape so that the people could use that landscape for their needs. So how, through your studies and through your management and monitoring of species, how do you help the communities um, engage and incorporate that mindset of the, let's say, six points removed sense of benefit versus the direct negative benefit? How do you go about helping people understand this ecological, environmental benefit of having live wildlife. What's that process?
3: Uh, In order to have people appreciate uh, the positive ecological benefits from having elephants around them, we've actually, through the former uh, organization Space for Giants, we were able to initiate a series of community awareness and education activities. Some of these included uh, working with local leaders to initiate field days where we could demonstrate, we could have a video show, but also uh, provide booklets that are explaining a few of these in, in, uh, in diagrams. And so in each and every community we would visit them and have people come in through a workshop uh, or a seminar in form of a seminar. And we take them through this process in a very simplified manner. And what we could see was that whenever we gave good examples For example, where elephants have been able to clear uh, thickets and created grazing areas, we would see some nod of acknowledgement from the pastoralists. But also where elephants have been able to uh, help out in terms of uh, opening space for, I mean, sorry, digging out water for pastoralists again, we would also see even non-pastoralists acknowledging that they have been able to get water from those areas. So the key process here is basically engaging communities through a well-structured community awareness and education process. Uh, On the other side, in order for them to appreciate that the negative impacts might as well be, uh, you know, mitigated, we've also managed to work with farmers through capacity building and also trying to work with them to trial or experiment certain new technology or methods that are very cheap They are simple and easily affordable. For example, use of chili fences, use of beehives, which the farmers can easily access, but also they can use the same approaches as an alternative livelihoods or economic activity, thereby taking away some of the pressure or some of the losses they suffer from elephants. In that way, therefore, we've been able to change their mind uh, to take the presence of elephants positively, but also to appreciate that, When elephants live around them, it does not necessarily have to be uh, a hate relationship. They can coexist by engaging in certain livelihood activities that do not uh, compromise the presence of elephants in their surroundings.
2: So you're able to communicate with the people, of course, because we speak a similar language, not not necessarily English, but we're able to communicate uh, mindset concepts and context and examples. But we can't do that with the elephants. We can't talk to the elephants and have a reasonable conversation to get elephants to go someplace else. So um, you use two words that are used a lot in conservation, conflict management and mitigation. So these, all, these words are bandied about a lot, but what do they actually mean? What is mitigation and how do people accept that? And how do you help elephants understand where, they, where they're safe to go and where they're not safe to go? And do they respond to that?
3: Uh, to, uh, first of all, I'll explain uh, conflict mitigation. And, if, of course, you realize that I've deliberately avoided using the word conflict resolution because many a time we try to reduce the levels of damage incurred through human-elephant interactions. Because for as long as people and elephants coexist, conflicts or such negative interactions will always persist. So what we try to do is to let farmers appreciate the fact that these conflicts will always persist, but that we can always reduce the amount of damage or mitigate the the, the intensity and severity of damage they incur. And so once that has happened, then we are able to engage with them on 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 a similar platform of understanding that we are all working to reduce the levels of losses, but also encourage coexistence. Uh, At the same time, we all appreciate that we cannot really speak to the elephants because we cannot speak their language. But what we try to do is sometimes to try and, uh, you know, uh, manage or model their behavior. So, for instance, where we've got male elephants primarily getting involved in crop raids, we try to manage such elephants through certain or rather through a series of actions. So for instance, when a fence is constructed to demarcate cropland from conservation area, we try to patrol actively the fence line. In that way, we try to make sure that elephants tend to respect that fence. But also in some cases, we know elephants use their tasks, for instance, to break fences. And so we try to cut short the tasks so that they do not have the hooking effect where they are able to hook on the wires and pull them back Now this then demoralizes them because they have to use a lot of energy to break fence only to get some, uh, you know, food supplement. And at the same time, whenever they are harassed or the the bad ones are uh, translocated to another area, then we are able to reduce the pressure that they put on the management or mitigation measures. And so the levels of damage tend to be managed at that level.
2: So I have a question, Um, you have fences, are these fences, I have a couple of questions. Are these fences electrified and does that have any impact on the elephants?
3: Yes, the fences are electrified and uh, they are powered using solar system or solar uh, components and these ones do not have negative impacts in the sense that the amount of power that flows through them is regulated at 11,000 volts. Now this can only cause some kind of a, a you know a, a sharp in to, to an elephant but it doesn't have an impact that can lead to death.
2: So um just uh, just out of curiosity do you find which which sex gender of the elephant do you find creates more problem is it the lone bulls because bulls studies show that they live and Act and use the landscape very differently than the female matriarchs who carry the families which one resp- Which one, male or female is in general, This maybe this isn't an answerable question but I'm just wondering because you studied them f- and worked with them for, and interacted with elephants for so long do you find there are more problems with bull elephants or more problems with the matriarchs and their families
3: again this is This is not very definitive, but in areas like Laikipia, we identified male bulls are the ones who are very persistent in crop raiding because they tend to take risks, as opposed to females who tend to protect their young ones from exposure. But in some areas where we do not have active defense systems, uh, like I've seen in the MARA, Females and the uh, young elephants tend to cooperate as well, and especially where the forest or are much closer to cropland, but also there's no barrier or physical protection that the farmers tend to give. And so the females don't perceive any risks that make them tend to protect their young, young ones. But m- all, mostly males are the common ones that, in, that are involved.
2: Well, thank you. This is a fascinating conversation. We're going to need to cut away for a short break, but stick with us. My guest is Tobias Nyumba. He's in Kenya as we speak, and um, he's uh, working back in the Maasai Mara, and then we will be continuing his studies at Cambridge University. So this is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles, wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems, the wild effect, it's in our hands W-I-L-D-I-Z-E Have you become a member
4: yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. For 27 years, Kidstar has empowered thousands of kids across the country.
2: And now, we have the opportunity to empower children around the world.
4: Kidstar is announcing a new radio show called Voyage Earth. Voyage Earth will empower kids from across the world. Kidstar has created a Kickstarter campaign just for this new undertaking. By pledging to Kickstarter, you pledge for a future of
3: empowered people to come. My name
2: is Mark from the tech team on Voice America Kids Network. I want to thank you for being a backer of our Kickstarter Voyager. Kickstarter, we empower kids.
4: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN.
1: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 that's one 472 5788 If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
2: And welcome back. This is your host, Ellie Weiss, our wild world, and my very special guest, Tobias Nyumba. Uh, before the break, Tobias was outlining for us what the conflicts and what the mitigation options are in living with elephants on the ground in Africa, where that interface between people and wildlife is very, very close compared to what we deal with here in the U.S. There are no elephants here, we can't necessarily relate to the considerable uh, magnitude of what elephant and human conflict and mitigation is about and why it's so critical these days when elephants are under such pressure. So in that effort, Wild Eyes has helped support Tobias to his Ph.D. studies at Cambridge to follow up because he has... Uh, big plans, and he has goals in mind, and he's Kenyan. He speaks the language, he speaks the people, to the people, and he has a good understanding from growing up there of what these local problems and assessment needs require. So, Tobias, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, and what are the studies that you're doing now and uh, at Cambridge, and how will they help you in returning to Kenya to... uh, minimise and work on solutions towards this problem with elephants?
3: Thank you, Ellie. Currently, I'm enrolled at the University of Cambridge in the geography department for my PhD. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the political ecology research group. And what we do is to try and find uh, you know, workable solutions towards uh, conservation challenges that that extend beyond just ecological aspects and also to include political aspects. And so my current work at Cambridge is focusing on human and elephant conflicts, uh, and in particular, looking at how such conflicts are impacting on human well-being, Uh, but also having to focus on a very new thing that has has been neglected for quite some time, and that is the indirect aspects of human-elephant conflicts. Now, most of the research on human-elephant conflict has actually focused on the direct aspects such as crop rates, human deaths, human injuries, uh, elephant deaths, livestock deaths, and injuries. And so you've read most of the publications about uh, the amount of crop that is lost, the financial costs that are incurred, the number of people that have been killed by elephants, the number of livestock that have been injured or killed by elephants. But rarely do we hear people talk about the psychological impacts of such conflicts, Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the impacts of uh, whenever crop raids occur, then crop is lost, and by extension, we suffer food insecurity. Now, some of these things are never talked about within the discussions or debate about human-elephant conflicts. Things like disruption of school. Many kids tend to go to school late, or they don't go to school at all, because either they are defending their crops, and so in the morning, they are sleepy, and they don't have the energy to proceed. And at the end of the year, they sit the national exam, and what happens is they score lower grades. Now, by extension, then, this means they are not able to secure admission to good schools and eventually do do not uh, qualify for good employment. So the cycle of poverty then continues as a result of an incident of crop raid, which was a direct impact, which you are able to quantify. And so my focus, therefore, is to try to highlight, document some of these indirect aspects of such, or rather impacts of such interactions, but also look at how human-elephant conflicts impacts on human well-being. Now, my attention then is drawn to the fact that uh, human well-being, or rather attempts to understand human well-being is quite complex. And uh, most of the studies that have really focused on human well-being have been rather economical, and they have uh, attended mostly to the aspects of money and a bit of happiness. But now, thanks to a study or a research that has been done from the University of Bath in England, uh, a model that is really applicable to the African situation is called uh, the Well-Being in Developing Countries Framework. And I find this quite useful because it offers a good opportunity. So um,
2: you're, you're implementing a new model. And um, what we have always talked about, and we being conservationists who work directly with these human wildlife conflicts and mitigation and finding solutions toward coexistence to keep wildlife alive and keep people alive is that conservation really is about people. So your studies are focusing on the people aspect so that when you can provide well-being and security, social security, economic security, and food security for people, then they have A much more willingness, I call it mental wiggle room, to think about the needs of living with wildlife. So tell us a little bit more about this model that, um, that you're working, bring in the political aspects of how you'll, you'll be working with this model to address the political policy and development side to get government and NGOs on board with this new model.
3: Now, my study is going to use a human well-being in developing countries model, which has got three dimensions of human well-being that it considers. And this includes the social aspect, the subjective aspect, and the material aspect. Now, each of these components are affected uh, by the human-elephant interactions differently. And so, like we mentioned, that conservation is about the people then if the social aspect or the social relationships that people have, either at household level, society level, national level, and even at global level, is then affected by human-elephant conflicts, then chances are that people are not going to support conservation. Now, because previous study merely focused on the material or the actual direct damage, it meant that how people were affected in terms of their relationship has never been incorporated in the policy and practice of conflict mitigation. It is my hope therefore that if I'm able to identify what aspects of such relationships are impacted upon, then we will be able to mitigate such kind of impacts and people will start appreciating the presence of elephants. Uh, Subjectively, of course, uh, whenever conflicts occur, Generally, it is considered that the society is affected, but in reality, it affects individuals at different scales. For instance, at a household level, when a woman or a, a mother in the household cannot be able to collect firewood because elephants are not allowing her to move into the forest, then her responsibility or satisfaction as a household, as a housewife or a mother, is impeded. And that means, therefore, she will always not be a a well-rounded human being who then feels that the presence of elephants is making her a lesser housewife. But at the same time, children, for instance, going to school, at individual level, each one of them would want to achieve their goals. And if such goals, for instance, scoring better grades in school is affected by conflict, then they are not able to eventually grow up as people who appreciate conservation and who are able to participate effectively. Uh, Materially, then we also consider this in the sense that when people lose crops or are not able to earn a living because of conflicts, then what that means therefore is that they are not going to be able to satisfy their material needs. And so this model therefore will be able to identify individual needs and societal needs and then be able to Rank them to see which one actually is the most important to the society, to the individual, and at household level. So that mitigation measures then will be targeting those components that are affected by conflict, as opposed to just building fences to address conflict wholesomely without focusing at who then is impacted upon and how are they impacted upon.
2: So basically, this model that you're working on sort of turns everything on its head upside down in the sense that you're looking at ways to help people understand not only to address the impacts but to address it in a positive way. So how does this link to policy development and working with governments and NGOs to pull it together? Once you finish the study and Uh, worked with the villages on the local level, how does it all come together to be able to create policy change?
3: Thank you. Eventually, Ellie, when we are able to identify those specific components that are impacted upon by the conflicts, then it means that we are able to influence uh, development agencies, government agencies, and the NGOs working either in development in education provision, health provision, and water provision to specifically put in place measures to help individuals obtain such components without necessarily coming closer or into areas where elephants are. So for instance, if we are able to identify that uh, women are greatly affected because they do not have proper access or good access to water because elephants stand between them and the river, then we need to engage the water ministry or water sector to have boreholes and other uh, water sources or resources made accessible to the women within their localities. At the same time, the Wildlife Authority, for instance, Kenya Wildlife Service then, will be able to channel their resources to address those specific needs of the society that they consider important, as opposed to what the Kenya Wildlife Service consider important within the elephant conservation framework. And then that means, therefore, that the community and the conservation organizations and the government will be able to come together to address needs that then will make the society support conservation because their core needs or their well-being aspects are being addressed by the relevant authorities. And this becomes a collaborative effort as opposed to what we have today where the government or the wildlife authority then makes decisions on how best to manage uh, conflict and goes to the ground and address conflicts in a way that has never been sustainable. And so what we've seen is persistent conflicts in the same areas every year and every season. Ellie? So
2: today, I'm here. So today, with this new model of pulling together the, the human resource from the government level to the local level, to the uh, in-between mediator, which would be the conservationist, you, creating these models, how difficult is it to move policy forward, especially in these times where elephants are in crisis due to the... News. News. News.
1: Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. w-i-l-d-i-z-e dot
4: What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Search Voice America at your favorite
0: app store. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in
1: now. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.
3: Well Ellie, I'm afraid I wouldn't really comment positively on that because this is a new model that is yet to be you know verified as a, a, as a working model. It's only been in operation or in trial for the last uh, four or five years, and the first trials were done outside uh, Kenya, in Ethiopia, Peru, and other countries. And within the human wildlife conflict context, we only have the first trials being done in Zambia and now uh, in Kenya, I'm trying to see how well it can work. And therefore, it might not be an immediate thing. It might take a few, it might take a lot of time to have this uh, uh, kind of uh, disseminated to the relevant authorities and have them understand the entire process and be able to incorporate this into the policy making process. And so in terms of timeline, we are looking at a longer period because once I've done my research, which should end in the next two years, then I should be able to disseminate this uh, through the relevant uh, s- uh, stakeholders and also through the re- relevant authorities, and have this infiltrate or get into the policy-making system, uh, which, as usual, might not be an immediate thing. But it offers a lot of hope for the future, given that we've had conflicts for quite some time and we've tried all different measures and all different approaches that have proved quite, uh, you know, unproductive. And so it is my conviction, therefore, that uh, in the next 10 or so years, once this model becomes incorporated and people take it up and, you know, understand each and every component of it, then it should be able to change our thinking and our way of dealing with communities and conflict, as well as conservation and all the other conservation challenges, like poaching, for instance. You've just mentioned that. And we've all agreed that poaching sometimes occurs because people lack way of getting, uh, you know, income or sustaining their livelihoods, and therefore, they tend to engage in that in order to supplement their income or to get money. And so if you are able to address their social needs, their economic needs, as well as psychological needs, then they might be able to keep away from elephants. But also remember, this method is also going to highlight some of the positive uh, things that people see in elephants, and so this might be disseminated to the wider community who might then change their entire perception and attitude towards elephants. And so I think as a model, therefore, it is quite uh, comprehensive, but also it looks at the entire society in terms of gender from youth, women to men. And this offers a very good platform to address across cutting issues about conservation and human and elephant interactions.
2: Well, this is very, very exciting because it is finally, at last, Incorporating a a much wider scope of the needs of both elephant and 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 people, so but you mentioned maybe five ten years, so I do want our audience to understand that during this gap, while this model is working on being implemented, there are many other uh uh reasons and programs and processes that are being put into place now while elephants are in crisis. So, Tobias, do you think we have or do you think elephants have 10 years to, um, to wait? To, do you think it will be possible that we'll still have elephants in 10 years to turn this thing around?
3: In Kenya, for instance, elephants have got a bleak future. And this is something that has been demonstrated, especially because of the current rates of poaching that is going on in the country. Uh, But at the same time, the human population and the pressure it puts on the conservation areas is more urgent at the moment because conflicts basically arise wherever the needs of humans and the needs of wildlife, and especially elephants, overlap. And this overlap is caused by the current uh, growth in human population conversion of land to agriculture, clearing of the elephant habitat, and construction of other infrastructure like roads, urban areas, and housing. And so if in, the mean, in, in the meantime, as, as we still work on this model then, uh, what we are trying to do is to encourage the government and other stakeholders to try and address some of these uh, causative factors so that as much as we cannot talk about halting population growth, What you can look at is how to manage these settlements, try to encourage people to settle or to have their farms away from these wildlife areas. But still, uh, given that these things require cross-sectoral interactions, then it means we do not have to speak just to the government and to the wildlife authority. We have to speak to everybody, including the population or the local residents themselves, because they are the people in direct contact with the elephants, and so... If they can be able to change their behavior, if they can be able to manage their expectations and change their uh, livelihoods activities, then we should be able to minimize or reduce the levels of losses that might accrue to elephants while we still work on this kind of a model. But it is my conviction once more that within the next 10 years, in between, various components of this model will be trialed. And some of them might be very effective in the short term, but we also try to look at the long term so that the policy aspect then we'll be able to address the longer term, but in the meantime, we are able to address some of the immediate needs like land use change or land use planning, uh, reforestation and habitat protection so that elephants can still be able to survive with or without the new model in place.
2: So in this gap period that you're just talking about, implementing parts of this model, do you find it's working? Do you find... That you're able, it's, it's a big concept, and I know a lot of the local people are either uneducated or in early, you know, primary or secondary school, so children are critically important to this piece of this puzzle. Do you find in the meantime those adults, women and men, are able to incorporate this sense of urgency of time until we can find solutions?
3: Uh, In terms of the local people being in the uh, agreement or rather participating in the management of elephants within the gap period, as we still work on this model, well, the reality on the ground is that many people really appreciate the existence of elephants on their property or within their localities. But the biggest challenge to them is just how how the benefit then can be accrued to them. And so what we've seen, especially in the Mara area, is a Many community members have come together to form group ranches, and then they have constructed uh, ecologies, as well as having campsites within their property to encourage locals and foreigners to camp, and then they are able to get direct revenue. Now, this is a model, or this is an approach that works very well for them, especially because they are not able to cultivate the same pieces of land. However, in areas where farmers exist, for instance, where I used to work before in Laikipia, It is not entirely easy. And therefore, what the government and the stakeholders have done is to try and create hard boundaries or fences between farmers and and, and their wildlife. And then they have incorporated the locals in the management of those fences in a manner that has made them own and accept that the fences actually belong to them. In that way, therefore, they have been able to appreciate that for as long as the elephants exist on the other side, they can maintain the fence on one side and be able to get what they can get from their property or their individual parcels of land adjacent to the conservation areas. And therefore, what we've found out is that for as long as people are brought in and people are able to participate, then they appreciate the fact that uh, elephants are important, not just to them as individually, but also to the national economy, which then subsidizes the cost of living for them. For instance, free primary education, the cost of sugar, cost of hunger and all other needs that they, they might need, which otherwise they would have paid dearly to access.
2: That is a huge shift from let's say five, ten years ago, where it was just conflict, 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 and retaliatory killings, whether it be lions or elephants. So this is, a, this is an incredible and important shift forward. So I'd say this model that you're working on and have been working on for the past several years, not only through your education at uh, Cambridge, but also working with AWF and Space for Giants, it's had a huge impact. So it's a very positive note. So do you feel being on the ground in the Mara that there is time, and that elephants will survive this because the local people are on board and with local people being on board it will be able to shift government policy
3: for as long as the local people are on board and again as you know this just emphasizes the fact that uh, we are conserving wildlife for the people and therefore their participation in the conservation process then gives a lot of hope not just presently but also to the future of wildlife in kenya so what the government then has done and still needs to do is to find better ways of incorporating the participation of the local communities in conservation projects and this of course the government has done well in terms of of you know having local conservation groups being supported being funded being trained and also they have a number of exchange visits to other areas where different conservation models have been implemented and so, so the future for elephants in kenya is not entirely bleak especially if you consider the participation of locals and therefore what we've seen in other areas like mara is where people have been able to report cases of poaching or suspected people whom they think might engage in poaching to the wildlife and uh, you know other uh, security agencies this kind of approach then means that the people get empowered in their own wildlife and they feel responsible for the protection of wildlife, not just for the benefit of the states, but also for their own benefits.
2: That's a very big difference from what's been going on. And I'd say the one of the most important words that you used was ownership, where previously the government owned the wildlife, no matter whose private land it was on even if it was a community conservancy so your mention of the ownership of the fences makes them stakeholders yes yes so that that's a positive step forward that actually engages the people which is the difference between what i'm going to call old conservation colonial conservation model into this neo colonial conservation model where it was still implemented mostly by foreign aid, foreign um, organizations, even with local researchers. So the big shift is it's much more locally based now. Funding still comes from foreign aid, but the people in Kenya have much more of a decision-making process on how those funds are used. Yes?
3: In fact, now the local people's are able to make decisions for themselves where the funds for conservation are supposed to go to and they prioritize what they need to be done with the funds instead of having the government or the donors decide where their funds must go to, which is a huge, huge success and a positive point for conservation.
2: That's amazing. It's, it's, it's very hopeful. So we have just a couple minutes left here. So what I'd like our listeners to understand is that conservation here in the U.S. is a very different model that is geared toward people recreating in our wild places. We no longer have the same kind of megafauna that impacts our enjoyment of our wild spaces, whereas in the parallel of Africa, conservation policy and programs is much more geared toward protection of wildlife, and for a long time it left the human component out of that, which created conflict of itself. Now what's happening in Kenya, as Tobias has helped us understand, is that the people component is now recognized as a critical component of moving elephant conservation forward. So hopefully between now and the next five and ten years, we will see a big positive shift of people on the ground who live with wildlife taking a much better role and a sense of responsibility for those elephants and all the species that live under the elephant umbrella to their heart because they'll understand not only the aesthetic value, but the economic value of live wildlife, especially live megafauna such as elephants. So Tobias, we have maybe two minutes left. What would be the one thing you would like Our audience to take away today?
3: Uh, One thing that I would like our audience to take away today is that people and wildlife do not have to only exist in a negative manner. They can always have positive impacts on each other and take care of each other. Like I demonstrated initially, elephants have got both ecological and social benefits to the community or to the locals, but also people have got. Not just the responsibility, but also they have got both positive and negative impacts on the elephants. And therefore, it is our responsibility to try and find a balance on how best to coexist with elephants as they form part of our nature and we form part of their nature.
2: That's very well put, and thank you. Because once again, it leads to what this program, Our Wild World, is all about. And it's humans learning to coexist with the other beings, non-human, insect, you name it, on this planet. And it leads to what we've been talking about lately, the humane backyard and humane wildlife services, that there are other responses that include and encourage living with wildlife as opposed to killing wildlife. So we're at that stage in our evolution that we people must change our perspectives to include wildlife as our wild neighbors. So unfortunately we are out of time today. Thank you Tobias so much for being here today.
3: You're welcome. And, and thank I- you also for well. Go sorry. ahead. You're welcome and thank you and thank you for inviting me to the program. I appreciate the fact that I've been able to talk to your audiences and wish you all the best.
2: Thank you and once again I apologize for the breakups but Uh, enjoy your week. Tobias, thank you have a good evening and we'll see you next week on Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss your host.
3: Thank you so much and have a good evening too.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host Ellie Weiss on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.